welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Each week, we'll take you beyond the headlines and help you understand what they all mean for Israel and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Sethi Kogan. This episode is the first ever in AJC's exciting new partnership with the Times of Israel. Joining me from the Times of Israel newsroom to discuss how People of the Pod came to be and what you can expect from our exciting future is Amanda Borchel-Dan, Jewish World Editor of the Times of Israel. Amanda, thank you for joining us. Hey, thanks, Sethi. Now, the Times of Israel is relatively new to the Israeli media scene, less than a decade old. But in that time, it has become a giant in the sector of Israeli and Jewish world news. What's the vision behind the Times of Israel, and why do you think that speaks to so many people? Well, when we began in February 2012, we really saw a very wide open market for centrist, unbiased news coverage. And as you know, the Times of Israel is both a news platform and a blog platform. So at the same time, we were allowing people to view their own opinions through a variety of uh, purviews and and different, uh, shall we say, approaches, as long as it's not inciting to any kind of violence, obviously. And we're giving honest, realistic coverage of what's happening in Israel and the Jewish world in real time. Amanda, if I were to, you know, open up a pack of baseball cards and pull out the Times of Israel card and flip it over, and I'm looking at the stats, right? What are the Times of Israel stats? What are the numbers that really help people get a sense for for the behemoth that the Times of Israel has become in just seven years, like you say? That's interesting. There's obviously the stats, and of course, there's the picture as well. And the Times of Israel really is many different pictures. We are a blog platform. We are an English news site. We're in French, we're in Arabic, and now we have a new Hebrew site. So in terms of even just the picture, there are many different pictures depending upon the person who flips the card. Now, in terms of the stats, each month we have something like 5 million unique users. We have something like 10,000 different bloggers on our various platforms. And increasingly, we have local partnerships with other news, Jewish news organizations to help them strengthen their coverage of the local Jewish news. You know, I, I grew up in uh, in northern New Jersey, and the Jewish newspaper that I would look at every Shabbat, every Friday night or, or Saturday, would be the Jewish Standard. And I was so excited a few years ago when I saw that the Jewish Standard was actually going to be joining the Times of Israel's platform. That's true. It's not only the New York and the New Jersey story Jewish Standard, we also have the Jewish Week of New York, the London Jewish News, another New Jersey paper, the Pittsburgh Jewish Chronicle, and the Atlanta Jewish News. So stay tuned. It could be another local newspaper uh, anytime. Now, we're launching this exciting partnership between AJC and the Times of Israel as we collaborate on People of the Pod. One challenge people might be wondering how we'll navigate is the different goals between an advocacy organization and a journalistic institution like the Times of Israel. What do you see as the differences in the goals between AJC and Times of Israel? Well, I know that AGC is a fair-minded organization, as is the Times of Israel. The Times of Israel is also unabashedly Zionist. We make no uh, claims to not support the state of Israel. So is that advocacy? Probably not. But at the same time, we have similar goals in the end of the day to provide coverage, honest coverage of Israel in the Jewish world and support in in a certain sense for the Zionist endeavor. 
Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. You know, what brings our two organizations together is that we're both centrist. We're both Zionist. We just do two different types of work, right? So whereas we are focused on advocacy and creating policy changes and, you know, driving decision makers, you know, the Times of Israel is reporting and, you know, actually maybe you can say it best, you know, what are the goals of a journalistic institution? We will criticize the state of Israel when it needs to be criticized. We will enlighten the Jewish people in our broad base of other religions and peoples of our readership when things need to be uh, spotlighted. We make no uh, claims of hiding anything that could go against the government of Israel or the state of Israel. We show honest, true reporting of things that are happening, both the good and the bad. At the same time, we don't give a platform, for instance, on our blog platform to somebody who would incite violence against the state of Israel or a massive, uh, the truth is, I'm not sure if this has been tested. I'm not sure if we would give a platform to a proponent of BDS who would incite against the state of Israel. But our job, as we see it, is to be the microscope and also the telescope to show what's happening inside and outside the state of Israel to the Jewish people. I'm really excited about this partnership, and I know that as we put out episode after episode each week, people are going to get a real sense of how special what we're doing here is. Amanda, just before I let you go, can you tell us what are you most excited about for this partnership? I'm really excited to bring the flavor, sounds, and virtual sights of the state of Israel into people's earbuds. I hope that at least once a month we'll be able to give good on-the-ground reporting and uh, let people really hear for themselves the rich variety of textures that the country provides and, uh, and hear and virtually see a different side of the country than they would perhaps otherwise. Terrific. Well, I'm looking forward to uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of people subscribing to have people of the pod from AJC and the Times of Israel coming to them right into their earbuds, as you say, every week for the foreseeable future. Thanks for joining us today to talk about this new partnership. Thanks for having me, Sassy. Leah and Simcha Golden are the parents of four children, including Lieutenant Hadar Golden, an Israeli soldier who was killed in action in 2014 in the Gaza Strip by Hamas terrorists. Hamas has held his body for the past five years, seeking to use Hadar's parents' suffering to gain leverage over Israeli policymakers. Instead, Leah and Simcha have become tireless advocates, traveling the globe, appealing to world leaders, all in an effort to pressure Hamas to return Hadar's remains. Leah and Simcha Golden, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'm happy to be with you. I think the first thing people will wonder when they hear the story of your son is why would Hamas hold on to the body of a soldier? Unfortunately, Hamas is a terror organization. And we, Israel, already for the last 30 years experienced this uh, way of, of, of kidnapping uh, soldiers and uh, keep them as a bargaining chip to release sentenced terrorists. But now it's too low to capture dead soldiers. Um, does Israel also hold on to the bodies of Hamas soldiers or of other terrorists that it may end up capturing? No, uh, no. Israel... Uh, 
on a regular basis uh, returns uh, the, the dead uh, terrorists, but only regarding the um, Hamas terrorists that are withhold until they will return under and uh, own and civilians in Gaza. And this is uh, perfectly not against the international humanitarian law. You and your husband, Simcha, have taken it upon yourself to be kind of responsible for ensuring that Hadar's body and the body of Oron Shaul, the other soldier whose body is being held that you mentioned, you guys have kind of taken it upon yourself to be responsible for getting them released. But whose responsibility is it actually? We didn't send Hadar to Gaza to fight for Israel. The, the main responsibility is on Israel and specifically on the head minister that he sends soldiers to the battle. And it's the unwritten uh, agreement between uh, families and uh, the country that he is responsible to bring them home, no matter what happened to them. And so you hold the prime minister responsible. Do you also hold Hamas responsible or do you think, you know, they're just an evil Mm -hmm. group doing evil things? What do you mean? Um, our prime minister is responsible for all the soldiers. As you know, we are Tzva uh, Am, you know, the, the People's Army. Mm-hmm. It is mandatory to serve in the IDF. From my perspective, being an Israeli citizen, my prime minister is uh, the, the first one responsible to send our soldiers to battle and to bring them home. This is the basic agreement between us to our country. Now, of course, Hamas is a, is a terrorist organization that did barbaric act. They have to return my son. I don't. Uh, responsibility is not um, is is not a term usually uh, connected to terrorists. Do you find that most people who you speak with in Israel and and around the world do they tend to see things from your point of view, but feel that there isn't really anything that they can do, or or do you get pushback? Do people disagree with you? People fully agree with us that Hadar and Oron must be returned immediately and unconditionally. And I would like to remind you that Hadar was killed uh, in a violation of a ceasefire on August first, two hours after ceasefire was declared. Hamas took advantage of knowing that the IDF protocol is not to shoot, ambushed them, uh, killed three of them, and kidnapped Hadar into the underground terror tunnels. So they have to return him immediately and unconditionally because this is a standing violation of international humanitarian law. And for this, everyone agrees with us here and in Europe and in Israel. So there is no question about it. Um, Leah, years ago, the name Gilad Shalit was on lips around the world as Israel pressed Hamas for his return. Today, Hamas holds the remains of two soldiers, your son Hadar, his fellow soldier Oron Shaul, um, and two living captives, uh, Ethiopian Israeli Avera Mengistu and Bedouin Israeli Hisham al-Sayed, both of whom reportedly suffer from mental illness. Why is the attitude in Israel and around the world different with these four captives than it was with Gilad, or or is it? No, it's not. I mean, it's, it's a tough issue to deal with uh, missing in action in the first place, as you know, here in the States, and specifically in Israel, when you have to deal with terrorists, uh, then it's uh, the asymmetry of a state. Uh, in any a way to look at it, having uh, wars, you know, or conflicts between a state and terrorists, 
you know, they violate laws of war, they violate everything, even to their own people. So this situation is difficult in any case, in any viewpoint. Mm -hmm. Leah, my last question is a simple one, I think. How can American Jews help? Oh, this is very important, and I will elaborate on it. Uh, since Sadar was killed in a ceasefire, brokered by the United States, John Kerry, and by the United Nations, uh, we soon learned that Hadar is a victim of a ceasefire rather than a, of a war, and the international should be a responsibility for his return. This is how we started five years ago. And now the main breakthrough happened last June, when the uh, Security Council, the UN Security Council, passed a resolution 2474, specifically to missing person, saying that whenever there is a conflict and agreements are initiated, ceasefire agreement, uh, specifically a peace-building process, the first thing to do is to return the missing persons and the remains of the dead. And as you know, America is now leading and initiated and leading the peace plan in our region. So this is the, our windows of opportunity that America will take the lead to uh, bring Hadar, Iran, and the civilians home as a confidence-building step now at the very beginning of the peace process. So we are here to, first of all, because we are invited by the UN Secretary General Guterres that took upon himself to implement this resolution with respect to Adar and Dawn. And we are uh, meeting uh, officials at the White House and the Department of Defense. But we need the Jews of Am Israel to help us convince from the inside uh, their administration that bringing my son, Adar, and Oron to Kever Israel to decent burial is a basic Jewish value. It's Chesed Shalemet. No matter you look at it, it's the most important value we consider and Jews. And for that, we need Am Israel to help us, specifically the American Jews. Well, Leah and Simcha, we will continue our work here to help you as much as we possibly can. And uh, we wish you much success in your endeavor. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. And Am Israel, Beyachad, together wins always. Thank you very much. Shoshana Keats Jaskel is a writer and activist and the co-founder of Chochmat Nashim, an NGO fighting religious extremism in Israel and raising the voices of women in the larger societal conversation. Shoshana, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. You have been an outspoken critic of the treatment of women in certain sectors of the Orthodox community. In a Times of Israel blog post earlier this year entitled, Something's Rotten in the State of Orthodoxy, you wrote that the heart of orthodoxy is broken, splintered into a dangerous and gaping divide, which first of all is just a beautiful sentence, but second of all is an aching emotion. Can you explain what you mean by that? Sure. Well, I think that the... You know, I should mention that I grew up in Lakewood, New Jersey, and even though I did not grow up personally Orthodox, I grew up in the Orthodox world in the sense that I went to day school. I had teachers who were, I didn't know the word Haredi back then, but ultra-Orthodox, you know, and um, for all of us, really, a Jew was a Jew. Some people wore wigs and some people wore jeans. Um, then yet we all said Shabbat Shalom to each other. We all were considered one another to be brothers and sisters. 
And unfortunately, in the past, I would say, 12, 15 years, I've noticed an unrecognizability. I don't recognize the orthodoxy that I see living in Israel, living in Bethlehem. I see an extremism, and that really comes out when it comes to women. When you know, there's an increase of erasing of women in publications. There's an increase in segregation where there doesn't need to be a segregation, but we have separation in orthodoxy when you have prayer, uh, which everyone in orthodoxy pretty much adheres to um, overall. And so in the synagogue, that makes sense when you're praying, when you're doing holy things, so you're supposed to have your focus, and so the genders are segregated so they don't distract one another. But now you do, you know, I went to the Swat Cemetery, and that's kind of what really sparked that post was I was in the Sot Cemetery, which is an ancient cemetery with, you know, um, people who were very holy, holy men, uh, mostly men, who were buried there. And you used to, it's a thing, you go to the grave of a holy person and you pray for the merit, in the merit of that person for the things that you ask for. And now women are closed off from these graves that I remember touching. And this is a complete extremism. It's absolutely not the way it's supposed to be. And so when I say the heart of Judaism is split, it's because I feel separated from and disconnected from the heart of my people when the extremism is causing ugliness. It's painful. And it's something that I speak out about because I love Judaism, because I love being Orthodox Jew. And what I see is simply not the beauty it should be. And Shoshana, how does this divide that exists in the Orthodox world, and and perhaps especially the Orthodox world in Israel, how does it trickle over into Israeli society writ large, including non-Orthodox streams of Judaism and, and even totally secular Israeli society? Well, because we have here no separation between religion and state, right? So anyone who wants to get married, if you're a Muslim, you get married by an imam. And if you're Christian, you get married by a priest. And if you're Jewish, you get married by a rabbi, but not just any rabbi. There's a centralized power of, uh, it's called the Rabbanut, and it's run by the ultra-Orthodox. And as I said, things have been going towards the extreme. So it's not like just a regular Orthodox ceremony or, or even a religious ceremony with any rabbi that you want. They have to be approved by the rabbinate, and every bride has to do certain things before she gets married or she can't get married, and there's no um, civil divorce. It's like there's no civil marriage. So even if you're secular, you have to marry and get buried. All these life cycle events have to go through the rabbinate, and so it's not so simple. If you're not religious, it doesn't mean that you don't have to do things in the way that the current religious establishment wants you to do it. Um, Moreover, in terms of politics, we have two Haredi parties, ultra-Orthodox parties, which ban women from their list. So you have 16 out of 120 MKs, which is greater than uh, 10%, um, that make up you know eight and eight of these two lists, and there's no women. So it reduces, first of all, the number of women in the Knesset, but it also leaves a very large population of religious women not represented. And that is a very big problem. And we see results of that lack of representation within the religious community, especially when it comes to women. I want to ask you more about that in in a moment. But before we do, just to clarify, so if you are, you know, the proverbial, you know, eats pork on Yom Kippur kind of Jew living in Israel and you want to get married in a marriage that will be recognized by the state, it needs to be done by an Orthodox rabbi? Correct. Yeah, um, it has to be done by an Orthodox rabbi. The only thing you can do in Israel is called Yadua Batibor, which means Yadua Batibor would be publicly recognized, recognized in, the, in the community. Yeah. So you'd be recognized as a couple, even if you're not religiously married. Which I guess is the equivalent of like a common law marriage. 
Common law, exactly. And this way you can have your health um, benefits and all those things that come along with being married, children, etc. But it's not clear if you don't need a get. It's pretty much a big problem because even if you're, you're dual B2B, you still might need a get. Uh, depending on how and when it was done. So that brings us Again, to... being a Jewish divorce. Exactly. That brings us to something I wanted to ask you about, which is that there have been some fairly high-profile stories uh, in recent weeks and, and even in the recent days surrounding this idea of a get, right? This idea that not only does an Orthodox rabbi need to officiate over a wedding of a Jewish couple in Israel, but a Jewish divorce in Israel also needs to be conducted in an Orthodox way, which has led to some issues. Can you fill in the the background there about what exactly a, a get is and how people can run into trouble with this? Okay. I have to do this in a very <laughs> succinct manner. So those of those of your listeners who know that there's a lot here will understand that I'm trying to do this quickly. Yes. Um, um, meaning, for, you know, shortly for, for brevity's sake. Basically, according to Torah law, once a couple is married according to Jewish law, the man has to give the woman the divorce in order for the marriage to be over. She can't divorce. She can't give him a divorce. She can. She has to accept the divorce, but he has to give it willingly to her. So basically what that means is, look, most marriages where the couple wants a divorce, most likely they come to the beginning, both of them say, I don't want to be married, and there are no problems. The problems begin when the man says, I don't want a divorce. And then the rabbis, there's a panel of three rabbis who make up the religious court, rabbinic court, um, that they say, okay, so they say to the wife, he doesn't want to, you know, divorce. So, you know, can you try to work it out? Or what do you want? You know, what will you give him in exchange? Which creates a whole bunch of problems. Because if someone wants to stay married because he wants to stay married, and the judges want to say to her, listen, try marriage counseling and come back. So a lot of people say, you know what, there's merit in that. This is a marriage and you shouldn't break it up too too quickly. But when somebody says, this is something I don't want, I don't want to be married, I don't want to go to therapy, or I've tried therapy, or he's abusive, or whatever it is, she doesn't have that right. She has to prove, quote unquote, to the judges that she deserves a divorce. At that point, if the judges feel, yes, she deserves a divorce, or she should have a divorce, they look at him and they say, listen, she really wants a divorce, and they try to convince him. But if he keeps saying no... They cannot force him to do so because then, the, according to religious law, it is a coerced divorce and therefore not kosher. What happens is if a woman doesn't get a divorce from her husband and if he runs away or if he just sits in his house and refuses to give her a divorce, she can't move on because she's a married woman and she can't get married to someone else. And any children that she would have with another Jewish man would be considered manzerim. And according to the Torah, a mamzer, which is commonly translated as a bastard, but that's not accurate, uh, it's basically a child from an illicit mar- uh, an illicit relationship. It could be from incest, it could be from uh, adultery, and any child she would have with another Jewish man would be of that status. And a mamzer is not allowed to marry into the Jewish people, and it's a really, really bad ostracizing um, status. And so if a woman can't get divorced, basically her life is halted. She can't move on. She can't have more children. She can't be freed. And in Israel, that's compounded by the fact that there's no civil divorce. So even if she doesn't see the guy, even if he's gone, even if he's in a coma, she's still financially tied to him. She, her children are still tied to him, meaning, you know, until they're 18, she needs his, his permission to even get dental work done. Um, and so it's a really big mess. When it comes to a woman who wants to be freed and a man who 
doesn't want to free her. And it speaks to the very basics of human rights. And so here you have a really big problem because the Jewish part of the state and the democratic part of the state clash. And the real problem is, we get back to the fact that the ultra-Orthodox are in charge of the entire religious establishment. There are halachic mechanisms. There are Jewish law options to free a woman from a marriage. They're not simple, but they've absolutely been done since the times of the Mishnah. And the rabbinic courts are very, very reluctant to use these tools, which makes everything much, much harder. We actually heard just this week, I think, about the state of Israel getting involved and actually confiscating the passport of someone who was refusing to give his wife a get um, until he relented. Is that right. right? Yeah. So the rabbinate is the state, right? It's really important that people understand that. There's no division between religion and state. So the religious courts are state courts. They're not family court in terms of secular courts, but they are state courts. Um, So the good thing about the the courts, and when they could work, is that they have the rights to sanction the husband or wife, whoever it is that's denying the get, because the wife can refuse to accept the get. Um, So, for example, if the court determines this woman deserves a get, and they say to the man, you have to give her a get, they can choose to take away his license, uh, dock his wages, they can put him in jail. And so taking away his passport is, I think the person that you're talking about specifically was living abroad. And so he went to renew his passport. He'd been a get refuser for six years. And the rabbinate told the foreign ministry, don't renew his passport until he gives the get or allow him into Israel and then we'll arrest him because they can do that. And so on the one hand, you know, civil rights activists say, how can you take someone's passport away for not divorcing their wife? But again, you come into this whole it's a civil right, it's a religious right, it's, a, it's an amalgamation of the two because, in, again, it's his refusal to listen to the court is, I don't know if it's a crime specifically, but, but he's in contempt of court. And so they have the right to sanction him, just like if you were to not show up to court in America for driving drunk mm-hmm. or for even running red lights, mm-hmm. if you're called to court and you don't come, you can be detained, you can be arrested. Right. Same thing here. Right. Um, so that's what they, that's their power. And Sometimes what they're able to do is all of a sudden, when these people, you know, when they get refusers, freedom is curtailed, all of a sudden it's like, oh, whoa, 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 wait a minute. And then in this case, the man gave the get. Mm-hmm. It's hard to call it a victory, though, to be honest with uh-huh. you. It's, it's hard. Well, so then let's turn back to what you described as kind of the systemic problem behind a lot of this, which is that there are these two Haredi parties in the Israeli Knesset that have no women uh, representation among their members of Knesset. And because of that, perhaps it's harder to make change. I guess my first question is, how is that legal? How is it legal not to have women? <laughs> it's a good question. Um So there's a lot of things that you would imagine that must be illegal, but it's not (laughs) illegal until it's tested, right? So, for example, in 2013, uh, someone who was running for the city council in Jerusalem, her name was Rachel Adaria, she uh, went to put up advertisements on buses, you know, political ads on the buses, and the bus company or the advertising company refused to take her ads. And she's like, well, why won't you take my ad? And they're like, we can't take ads of women. And she's like, what? You can't take ads of women's faces. What does that even mean? Like, well, just take your face off and have your name and it'll be fine. She's like, why can't I have a face? And they're like, well, Jehoram deface, literally, the (laughs) pictures of women. And so we don't want to, you know, it's it's just going to get ripped off and then you're going to have to do it again. And then we just don't do it anymore. 
And that wasn't illegal because it had never been tested, right? Like who puts on a law? You can't misuse women's images on advertising because it was simply not, it wasn't done. And so she had to go to the court. She went to court and she went all the way to the Supreme Court. And Supreme Court deemed it unacceptable that they would say that women can't advertise. And so after that, the Attorney General wrote an entire, um, I forgot what it's called, but it's an entire list of things that are considered discriminatory. And this is one of them. So when you ask the question, how is it not illegal? So has anyone gone to the courts to say, is it illegal not to put women on your list? Interestingly enough, the UN has this treaty. Basically, it's a treaty that nations sign on to that says they will not allow you know women to be discriminated against in their political system. Israel happens to be a signature to it. However, it's not a legal document. It's just a UN kind of resolution treaty. So it's not enforceable in that sense. So yes, in theory, it's illegal because it's discrimination. And it was just tested in the court. So Essie Shoshan, who's a Haredi woman who has been fighting this fight for a number of years, she runs a Facebook group and an organization that's called Lo Nibchot Lobochot, which means if we can't be elected, we're not going to vote. Mm. And she took this to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court just a few months ago said, yes, it is illegal. You have to put women on your list. So what did they do? They said, listen, fine. In theory, no problem. We'll put women on our list. But the rabbis choose our list. So it's really up to the rabbis. So what happens is, let's say you have 50 slots of men, and they'll put one woman on 51. It's a very difficult thing to enforce because what are you going to say? You have to have women in your top five. You're going to have to have women in your top 10. Is that really enforceable? Right. So they would say, you know, we don't have a policy of not having women. We just happen to not have any women exactly. in our top, you know, however many exactly. slots. And, and by the way, actually, it's not that uncommon, unfortunately, in a lot of Israeli parties to not have equal representation of men and women on, on their party lists. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think... I mean, I haven't looked at them recently, the new list, but I remember before the first elections, there was maybe one party uh, that had equal in their top 10, five men, five women. You know, because if, the truth of the matter is people who argue will say, oh, you didn't say that you have to have equal Sephardi Ashkenazi, equal, just, you know, uh, fully able and not able. Like, at what point can you enforce what you want to see in terms of diversity? Right. And while it's not something that I, I wouldn't get behind that argument— it's an argument that people are making, people, good people, by the way, not jerk people, but people who are just like, how far can we legislate and how much of this needs to be education or how much of this needs to be public pressure, you know, communal pressure to say, listen, we need representation of everyone on these lists. I don't know how much you can legislate and, and how far you want to go to, to legislate things. But again, you're right in the sense of this is a problem. And I think the last Knesset had a record number of women. And I think this Knesset is unfortunately going to plummet. It's for sure going to plummet because the parties that have merged have unfortunately pushed the women to the back. Yeah. Just before we close, Shoshana, um, I want to ask a really direct question because I think you're probably one of the world's best advocates on this particular issue. The question is this. Why should our listeners on People of the Pod who may not be Israeli and may not be Orthodox maybe one but not the other, maybe neither. Why should they care about these issues, about gender in, in orthodoxy? Well, I think that, first of all, unless you're planning on never, ever coming to Israel and you couldn't care <laughs> less what happens to it, 
this is something that you definitely should care about because the people who create the laws, the people who are representing the people who live here are going to shape the future of this country without question. And there's no question that the global Jewish community is shaped by what's happening in Israel. I mean, there's no way, you know, as a, it's a good question because I, a lot of the times, you know, um, I'm Orthodox, and people ask me two major questions: like, why can you? How are you still Orthodox? How can you still be Orthodox with all this is going on? And two, if if I'm not Orthodox, or if I don't see this in my modern community, why should I care? I mean, think of it: if you just stop for one minute and realize how the global Jewish community is connected in such a way, the more extreme that an Orthodoxy is going to get, the more extreme. Israel is going to get, the more extreme the holy places that you might want to visit, the more extreme the legislation is going to be, the more difficult it is to prove that you're a Jew or come to Israel and get married. All these things that you may not ever need, maybe you won't ever need any of that. You're living in Chicago, you're never going to come here, you're not going to worry about that. But what happens when your Chicago community is then influenced by the extremism that's happening or the Judaism that you love and, and, and honored and thought it was so beautiful is all of a sudden something unrecognizable. If there's one thing I've learned in all the years that I've watched this extremism take over, it's that if the moderates don't speak out, if people who care and who don't like what's happening don't say, hey, this isn't okay, hey, this isn't cool, let's work on making this better, it's not going to get better because Bullies win when nobody stands up to them, and terrorists win when nobody fights back. Moderates have to speak out. Moderates have to argue for a strong middle ground where people are respected, people are heard, people are represented. Otherwise, you are not going to have a healthy Jewish community, even if you don't care, and I think you should, even if you don't care about the rest of the Jewish community, it will come to your doorstep without question. Well, thank you for that impassioned pitch. I think it's spot on uh, about the importance of moderation and centrism and speaking out to advocate for those values. Folks, be sure to check out Shoshana's podcast, Chochmat Nashim, which is an excellent way to stay abreast on all these issues. Shoshana, thank you so much for joining us today. My absolute pleasure, Sophie. Thanks for having me. Now it's time for our closing segment, Good for the Jews where each week I share one final thought about a recent development in the world and try to answer that age-old question. Is it good for the Jews? Dogs. Good for the Jews? Elias Weiss Friedman has more than three and a half million followers on Instagram. I know what you're thinking. Who is Elias Weiss Friedman? Well, he's the young man behind the wildly popular Instagram account The Doggist, as well as the New York Times bestseller of the same name. And this week, he's in Israel, scouring the beaches of Tel Aviv for the cutest pups in the Jewish state. Maple is a one-month-old mutt with incredibly floppy ears who hangs out on the beach outside the Tel Aviv Hilton. Aviva is a five-month-old golden retriever puppy, and the post that she stars in has garnered more than 125,000 likes on the doggist Instagram. Chucha is a three-month-old Boston Terrier with huge eyes and even bigger ears who got 140,000 likes. All three of them are very good boys. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. Good boy. We at People of the Pod always love to see people paying attention to Israel for reasons other than conflict and strife and adorable puppies doing what they do best, loving unconditionally. Seems like one of the best possible reasons to pay attention. Dogs, as they say, are a mensch's best friend. And so they certainly are good for the Jews. 
You can subscribe to People of the Pod on iTunes or Google Play. Follow us on SoundCloud or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC and the Times of Israel. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you like this podcast, be sure to rate it and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Sefi Kogan. This episode is brought to you by AJC and the Times of Israel. Our producer is Kukang Do. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.